All right, everybody, let's start. Um, I don't know if you know how you've been introduced. No, you've, how, you've been how? introduced as the legendary, the, the legendary <laughs> producer of the of the Strokes album, right, right, of right. this Strokes album actually. Okay, right. But as we've just found out, you're a lot more. You're a musician. <gasps> I can do it all. I make commercials, um, cat food commercials, dog food. Com I'm very you know wide range. Yeah. And a synth collector. Synth collector. Yes. So we'll get yes. into that. But everybody, please give a warm welcome to Gordon Ruffin. Okay, uh, we'll start with 15 minutes of silence. <laughs> Not. Um, right, do you, you want to? I'm going to play like some music for you. That's how we're going to introduce. All right. um, I got three little selections. One is a song, and two are videos. That's why I have this beautiful pattern no one's ever seen before. I <laughs> custom designed that for you guys. And uh, the first thing I'm going to play you is an early production of my own music from when I lived in Seattle. I think I wrote the song in 1981, and I recorded this in a pretty good studio with eight-track recorder, uh, or maybe 16, I forget, one of those two, and uh, in 1983, and it got played at the college radio station, and well, I was really happy, I gave them a cassette, and they actually played it a few times, and what, what's interesting also is that I'm still working on this song. <laughs> I actually made a bra I started a band in Argentina last year because I was working there a lot. And we're doing a whole bunch of songs from this early album of mine. My band was called Color Twigs back then. And so I recorded a, a brand new version of this song with my band from Argentina, and I've been mixing it all week at my studio in Neukölln. But I'm going to play you the original version because I'm not sure that. The new one's as good. <laughs> okay. Let's see, I got a folder here for today. First of all, one must see what the colored twigs look like. <laughs> okay, right? So, guess which one's me? I dressed the other two in my clothes. So, anyway, so that's the colored twigs, and we're going to hear a song called I Sleep on the Radio. Let's see if it's. We'll be okay.
Thank you very much. Um, okay, so the next thing I want to play for you uh, takes me a little closer to the this time period. I had an opportunity, I recorded a couple Strokes albums, and when I grew up in Seattle, at the end of my career in Seattle, I met a family that had an amazing recording studio out on a farm with incredible gear and great tape recorders and trees and rivers. Soundgarden recorded an album there called Boat Bad Motorfinger. Nice. And I think Nirvana and Allison Chains did some sessions there. And Lionel Richie did uh, Dancing on the Ceiling there. <laughs> uh, what else? Uh, so I had this idea when the Strokes were touring for their album called Room on Fire, they had Regina Spector was playing with them. And I said, when you go to Seattle, I'll meet you there, and I'll, I'll get a free day in the studio, and you guys can come out and record a song, and if you like it, maybe we can record your third album there. That was my idea, to try to get them hooked up and record, <laughs> not in New York, how about Seattle, my old hometown. So they came, and they set up in this studio, and they were really happy, and I was really surprised, because the song they were, that Julian had written was featuring him doing a duet with Regina. So I didn't expect that at all. I just expected that she was on the tour and I didn't know they were like, had prepared a song together. And we did all the music inside in the studio and then when the vocals came, they recorded outside in the, like on, a, on grass with trees and one was at one microphone, the other was at another and there was a little dog sleeping in the middle. <laughs> so really, really awesome. And then I had the idea to make this video because no one ever made a video for it and I, I knew a good director in London and I kind of had a lot of footage of various stroke shows, various Regina shows, Regina doing the song live with them on stage. So I gave him my footage and said, make a video for this and maybe I could sell it to the band and, you know, cash out. <laughs> so I made this video and the guys really liked it, but they didn't buy it from me. And so, but I still have it. I, I can't put it online because I don't own the rights to it because it's not my music, but I want to show it to you guys because it's a pretty cool thing. So how would I do this? I make it big, like this, and make sure it's not gonna blow your ears out.
Do you want to play one more? Or? I do want to play one more. All right. Bombard the people with ideas. All right. Okay. Go ahead. We'll That's time to talk. Yeah. This one's not as long. It's three minutes and 18 seconds. The next one I want to play you is a band that I met in New York. They're from the island of Mallorca. They're kids, they're Mallorcan kids, and uh, I produced an album with them in New York, and I kind of fell in love with their music, and I went to their island and recorded a bunch more songs, and they played a show at a festival at three in the morning out in front of an old church on their island. So I took the studio recording that we'd done recently, and I hooked it, synced it up to their live performance video. That's what this is. They're called The, the Satellites from Mallorca. And I really like them. No, that's not that one. You already saw that one. I really like them. This is a very perfect kind of style of music that if I discover this, I'd be really excited. It's a bit chaotic. and watching all that stuff.
What do you want to know? <laughs> Still want to talk to me after that? <laughs> I mean, well, is it is it true to say that there's there's a little punk in everything that Bob Raphael does? Um, well, I think a rebellious spirit of discovery, perhaps. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. How how did that come about? Uh, because ever since I was a little kid or something, the music that I heard that I liked was always pushing the boundary. It was always like, it wasn't like there were 20 other things that sounded the same way. And this was one of many. It was always the things that just jumped up, whether it's The Doors or Jimi Hendrix or Devo or Susie and the Banshees or Bach or Chopin. It's always the people that are kind of like standing in a little world of their own. And I was going like, that's music. That's interesting. I could listen to that over and over again. Something about that. Are there still some acts that you listen to from those days? Oh, I mostly listen to music. Like most of them, I think my whole record collection kind of ends about '95 or something. Like that. <laughs> Although I do have Fifty Cent, The Massacre from 2005. <laughs> I love that album, and it's a great album to take to various studios to see if the stu if the speakers are correct. You play that, and if the kick drum isn't like hitting you in the stomach, and the sound of the little bullet shells bouncing on the ground don't sound like violins, <laughs> then they don't have their EQ correct. It's very funny. Oh, nice. Yes. But I, I listen, I mean, I meet new bands, I'm working all the time with new bands, so, you know, most of my day is spent with young people making music around the world. So I'm, I, I hear new music, but even the bands I work with, they tend to be inspired by, you know, guitar music or like that. How do they get in contact with you? I mean, There's a great invention called Kit. Facebook. Uh, is that kids from Mallorca, what they... In those days, actually, I had a studio in New York and I recorded a band called Madwana. And the bass player for Madwana was Sami Jaffa, who was from a very famous band from Finland called Hanoi Rocks, a heavy metal band, a glam metal band from the 80s or something. And so he liked my production on his album, so he brought these kids that he grew up with. He stayed in Mallorca for a while. So in those days, in New York, before the internet was really widely used, I would just go to clubs and meet bands. That's how I met The Strokes. I would just meet bands that played and said, I have a studio down the street, you know, I can make really good demos cheaply. And uh, that's how I, that's how I, what I said, I had a little card with my name on it and I did that. All right, that, yeah. that's already, how did it, I, I don't really know where to start. What? To be, I, don't, I don't know where, we, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to start at when you were six years old. And start where we want, but and they can ask me questions how, too. How did, let's say from, from when you the, the the recording that you were showing us yes to that studio in New York yeah how how did that come about what what made you you were a musician first yeah right? and I mean I never wanted I never wanted to record anybody else because my ideas were way too interesting and I thought how would, why would I want to work with someone else and then there was a day in New York I was even in a famous band in Seattle we were like really popular during the grunge time. Even though we weren't a grunge band, I played synthesizers in it. Um, so I went to New York, and one day I was like running out of money. I was like, really, what am I going to do now? You know, I've got really no chance. And some girl came up to me and said, I heard you can record things. And I said, yeah, I can. She said, can I hear some of your stuff? And I played her things I've been working on. And she said, well, that's really interesting. Can you record my band and make it sound like that? 
And I said, okay, I'll have to charge you for that. He said, okay. And, and her drummer heard my sounds the next day and he called his other band and pretty soon I had like a job within a few months without even trying. I didn't want to have a career as a producer. I want to be a big star and I'm still working on that. <laughs> it's getting tricky these days since you know, no one pays for music, but I'm still gonna find a way. Um, like coming here. Um, but back then, you, did you have any, anything, any, any gear, any studio, anything? I was actually, when I moved, I moved to New York two different times. Let's just talk about this time. The time I moved the second time from Seattle was in the year 1998. And I was in a wonderful band with a really cool girl. We were called Absinthee. And she was very smart, and her family owned that studio in the farm. That's how I became friends with her family. I was in a band with her. And when we got to New York, she said, Gordon, there's a really interesting ad in the Village Voice. There's some guy who says he's got our state-of-the-art recording studio, but he has a job during the day, and he wants someone to split the rent. You can work from like 9 in the morning till 7 at night, and he works from 7 at night until 5 in the morning. You know? Oh, yeah, okay. So I went there, and this guy had which was very new equipment at that time. He had like a really good Mac computer, Logic, speaking with Pro Tools cards. So in those days, Logic was so far ahead and it was a German program. It wasn't a Macintosh program yet. It was eMagic Logic. And they were the first thing that had MIDI recording and audio in the same software. In the old days, to use Pro Tools, you had to open up Pro Tools and open up some other software and then hope they could talk to each other long enough to do your music. But logically, you push one window, you're doing MIDI, one window, you're recording a drum. And it was just so brilliant. So he had good microphones and good preamps, and he also had a very powerful idea, which was instead of a million dollar console that would break down and you'd have to have somebody always working on it and cost a lot of money. He had one piece of, he read interviews with every producer he liked and he got that guy's favorite microphone and that guy's favorite compressor and that guy's favorite preamp. So we had a very small selection, but it was awesome equipment. And I really learned how to use uh, gear at that studio. Because when I was working on my own all those years, I was using a four track reel to reel or a Tascam eight track and a 57 microphone and an echo machine and some synths. Mm -hmm. Almost everything I learned was from those kind of equipment. So coming to New York, suddenly I'm working, learning how to use an Avalon, learning how to do logic, learning how to use a Neumann microphone, learning to record real drums, not just 808 drum machines. It was a real new thing for me. And that sound that that girl was talking to you, what did you develop that in that studio? The sound, yeah. That, that she was talking about, hey, I heard you do some recording. Yeah, she heard my songs and she liked the, some of the creative stuff. And uh -huh. she was like a singer-songwriter, so I didn't really get to do that many weird things to it, but just even every sound I made, she liked it. And it's kind of had my own approach, because as a producer, I really want to give the people, what I don't want to, to just me to be happy and the people whose music it is go like, oh man, we just worked for a week on our album and I don't like it. I don't want that. So if I make a sound, I ask you, if you're my artist, I say, do you like that drum sound? And you can go like, yeah, it's great, but maybe I'll tune my snare better. Or, oh yeah, but can you turn the hi-hat up? You know, I'm really interactive. So I made sure she was happy. 
And how did you did that just come about intuitively that that you had to interact in that? Or did you learn that some? I learned it when I made my Color Twigs album. Okay. I worked. I saved. I got a job. I rarely ever worked a real job, but I actually wanted to record my songs. So I worked in a catering company, driving a truck to parties and putting food out for this guy. And I saved up all my money, like four thousand dollars, and I went to a really good studio. And as soon as I got there. The guy said, "What do you want to do?" And he acted like this big, like you know, I've got a million dollar studio here, dude. What do you, kid? What do you want to do here? <sighs> like this, and I said, "Well, I want to record the snare, but I want to divide it into five channels: one through my rat distortion, uh, one with a backwards uh, reverb, one with a big reverb, one with a small reverb. That way, every time I could choose each hit, which which one I want." He goes, "Son, that's not how we do it here. But sit back and let me do it." So right away when I walked in the studio, my first experience was this big expert guy telling me that my ideas weren't really professional and he knew better than me and he talked me out of some of my ideas. So after I spent $4,000, I got home and I went, boy, the thing I did for free on my four track has a little more magic. You know, there's something about, I mean, his recordings are bigger and cleaner, but I'm not as interested in my little messy cassette recordings that I did with like too much echo and too much. So I figured if I was going to be a producer, I don't want to do that to anybody. I don't want someone to come in, have an idea, and then me tell them that their idea should wait because I'll show them a better idea. Like I record bands. And I already like them. When I when I get a band, I've already heard their demos, and I already know there's some cool singing. The drummer's interesting. Like I don't want to work with a boring band and try to make them interesting. I don't want to work with a singer who can't sing in tune and use my computer to make it sound. I don't want to work like that. That's not my style. I want to find somebody that's really exciting and put a microphone in his hand and make sure he's comfortable and he hears himself really well and go like, okay, do your magic, you know, and let him do it. And then if he wants to do it again, let him do it again. And if he asks me, do you have any ideas? I might say, yeah, can I make a UFO land in the middle of your song with my synthesizer? And he goes, I don't know, try it. And I go, and he goes, oh, that's cool. <laughs> so I like working with people and I don't like, like bossing them around too much. And then communication wise, do you find sometimes that with bands there is almost like sort of a a language barrier of how far they can they are able to tell you what they want now that you say that you you have that interaction how do you manage sometimes they might say oh well i'd like it different but can they always express that or how do you work around this it's really a problem in brazil <laughs> okay when they sing an english language but they don't know how to talk to me i just watch the smiles or the sad faces like you know like that <laughs> but funny you should mention that When I first met The Strokes, uh, I, I, I hope all of you haven't read this in interviews before, but I'd like to tell these stories. Uh, I had been working in industrial music a lot before I met The Strokes, where everything is really distorted, like distorted, distorted, like to a hundred, you know, to ten, everything on ten, just completely distorted. And when, I, when Julian said, what can you do to my voice to make it different? I said, watch this. <laughs> Nuclear destruction. And it was like, <laughs> and he goes, that sounds like shit. <laughs> He said, what if instead of nuclear destruction, you know how your favorite jeans, they don't have holes in them, but they're kind of comfortable and you've washed them a few times. What if he made the voice sound like that? 
I go, oh, okay. Like, like comfortable blue jeans. You mean instead of 10, we go down to like five, four, four and a half, three. He goes, yeah, that's really cool. And another great one he told me is I played, showed him some drum sounds I'd recorded of Fab, and he said, it's pretty good, it's pretty good. But it sounds like the whole drum set is a yuppie and the hi-hat is begging for 50 cents. <laughs> Can you uh, make it more the same? Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> that's it's an interesting example of yeah. how, how different the languages can yeah, be. Yeah, it can be. They don't know to say. But even, it's funny because they brought a guy into those sessions that they called the guru. Okay. And he was like their guitar teacher and he also knew a lot about recording. And I know a lot about recording, but I don't have a technical education. I have a musical education from playing piano and being in bands. So this guy would go like, he just sit in the back and go, like, hey, Gord, put a little more 4K, put 2 dB of 4K on my hat. And I think, 2 dB of 4K, what the hell, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? Like, he was really accurately describing what he wanted, but that was so, sp and I hadn't, I, I still can't tell you when I hear a sound, what frequency number needs to be turned down how many dBs. I can find it on the graphic EQ, I can quickly find it and do what has to be done, but I don't have a, a, a technical ear of like, oh, there's too much uh, 1,000 hertz in that song, you know, pull that out of the bass, you know. Okay, so. but that might make it easier for you to talk to these musicians, actually, uh, yeah. and their language. I can talk to musicians because I have been a musician my whole life, and I listen to music, and, you know, everyone wants to have their ideas be heard, and it's either louder or boomy. It's very rare that someone tries to tell me something and I can't understand what they're trying. And also, if somebody has a weird idea that I'm working with, like no matter how weird I think it is, I'm not gonna tell them it's not gonna work. It's easier to let them try the idea. It takes one minute to go out and pop a water balloon and see if it fits into that guitar solo. And then they all listen and they go like, no. Rather than me tell them, no, it's not going to sound good. It, it takes more time to justify not letting them try an idea okay. than to let them try a harmony, try a different drum fill, try to do a better solo. Just letting people do it, you know, is really a valuable thing. All right. Yeah. So now that you, you were jumping to that stroke sound already. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, you've almost half answered it, but I, I was wondering, was, was that, that sound that was very defining back then? Yes. It was a very new sound to rock and roll. Uh -huh. did, did that exist before the strokes? Did, is that something that you sort of invented and then the strokes came along and you were like, oh, okay. uh, that, that might work? Or, okay. or was it invented with them in a way? Um, the first day they met me in the studio, I said, what do you want? You know, what do you want to do? You know, what, 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 what should I think about here when I'm recording you guys? And Julian said, well, we, whatever people are doing nowadays in recording, that's what we don't want to do. That was the first thing he said. Whatever people are doing now, that's what we don't want to do. So I thought, okay, what are people doing now? Well, in 2000, Pro Tools was starting to be everywhere, which meant that instead of two 24-track decks linked together giving you 48 tracks if you were Michael Jackson, not if you were a normal person, you could suddenly, everybody could do 60 tracks of audio. And so what was every producer doing? They were recording a drum set, 
editing the living shit out of the drums and then adding a sample of an 808 and a Bob Clear Mountain kick drum sample underneath. So each kick drum had like four parts to it. The real one with two mics, the 808 sample, and a Bob Clear Mountain sample. So so suddenly productions were 60 tracks big and everything was sounding bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I thought, well, what's not being done? Oh, go out in that room and play your instruments together all in one room about this big. Just drums are here, amps are here, everybody's there. Go play your song. I'll put up eight microphones. That's how many inputs I had. And I'll record you guys. Okay. So the combination of them asking for a non-modern technique and then the big part of the, that's part of the sound was this live in a room all together making noise no overdubs no extra no doubled guitars no tambourines no harmony just one track for each person basically okay. I think I had three mics on the drums on the first recording we did later I had five when I had when I could get another input um and then in the writing of the songs themselves, there's a lot of magic. Because if you listen to the Strokes album, the first one, in the second one, it's made of counterpoint. You know what that means? Mm -hmm. Counterpoint. Instead of the normal rock and roll thing with somebody's playing guitar, Nirvana style, which I love Nirvana now that I saw that movie recently, <laughs> you know, big chords, one guy's playing chords and one guy's playing like little melodies. This is just like two melodies. One guy's going, no, 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 no. One guy's going, no, 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 no. It's like Bach. It's closer to Bach than it is Chuck Berry, okay? And then the bass is doing a doo 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 and the drums are doing a doo 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 and the voice is going na 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 So you got like six melodies going on at the same time, which is extremely rare for rock music. So that already in the writing, there's a very strange harmonic structure to those songs combined with not a very big sound. It's, that's what the sound of that, those records are. But then how did you avoid it not sounding like a 1979 television record, for example? That was, good idea. That Very was good. recorded quite similar. Yeah, like, yeah. How did you avoid that, that to make it still very modern at that time? Okay, I think... That's a very good question because if anybody's doing counterpoint and interesting little interlocking melodies, it, it would be television. I think when I first heard the band and did their EP, the, Mo the Modern Age EP with the eight, eight channels, I really thought that I was going to live out my Iggy Pop and the Stooges Raw Power album. That's what I heard. I heard, man, I think the difference is I was using a very aggressive like everything was very aggressive and a little more distortion and more yell, they, they yell more. Like, you know, Tom Verlaine's more like polite and poetic. He's very poetic on the television records. And Julian's got a voice like a truck, you know, when he opens his mouth and makes a yell, it's like, Rah! it sounds like a lion's roar. So I think something about the aggressiveness of their music combined with the intelligence of the harmony and me accentuating the distortions and the impact um, made it ha have that little, little that difference of sound. And then, did you have? Well, it's basically this is every producer's dream, like right, meeting a band like that, mm -hmm. that then shoots off into right. stardom. Yeah. That it was just coincidence, right? It was or just coincidence. And to be honest with you, the first time I recorded them, I was enjoying the music, but I thought these poor guys—they're just born in the wrong time. 
because nobody likes guitar music right now in New York. In, 19, in 2000, the year 2000, everybody knew that acid jazz and like the, you know, the, all the rock clubs were closing down and all the DJ places were coming up in New York City and in London. So for some band to come around, you know, wearing blue jeans and playing guitars, it was just like, they're very good, but oh man, nobody will listen to it. Nobody, I thought nobody will listen to this music. If you put this on any record company desk in New York, they won't even listen to it. And if they do, they'll hear it for one minute and throw it in the trash. That was my opinion. So when you met them, they weren't signed or anything? No, they were just kids. And I told them I could make a demo. Three songs in three days. That was my deal. All right. And, yeah. and would you recommend that? Like to, to any to any young recording artist? I recommend, would you recommend that going out? I recommend going out or and, and offering to record anybody that you like their music. I don't recommend recording people whose music you don't like because that'll make you hate your job. So if you find music you find interesting, it's always worth going up to them and asking them. For example, when I first came to Berlin, I went to Werner Krummer's birthday party at Nalepastrasse, right, out at Planet Rock. And that night he had an extravagant party. It was snowing and he had lights outside in the woods, colored theater lights, and there was a ba different band playing in every room. And I went and I saw a band called Super 700 from Berlin. And they blew my mind, like they were so great. And I thought, I should go talk to them. I should, I want to record them. And I thought, yeah, there's so many Berlin producers that are probably after this band because they're obviously fantastic. So I went up there like a fanboy, you know, hi, uh, do you speak English? Uh, a little bit. Um, I love your music. I love your music. C can I record you guys? I thought I was like could be at the end of a line, and they said, "Oh well, give us your phone number or your email address." And so I gave it to them. And a couple weeks later, they called me and they said, "You know, let's have a meeting." And I wound up recording them, but it's because I, I like music and I just go up to them and say, like, you know, give me a chance. Do you sometimes face the problems with bands saying? Yeah, we'd love to, but we don't have any money. Yes. Sometimes, if the band is like, I'm interested in them this much, and they say that, I say, well, oh, I'm so sorry, you know? And if a band like The Satellites, uh -huh. that I like that much, says that, I say, well, let's go for three days, or let's go try six days, and let, let's do something. I want Because sometimes I just want to hang out with them and watch how they play. I want, to wa I want to learn how that singer makes those sounds or what those guitar riffs are or how the band works. And I'm willing to sacrifice three or six days. I recorded Regina Spector's album for free. In fact, I paid, I had money, I had just gotten money for the first time then. And so I hired the studio, I bought the tape, I hired string players, I flew her to London and New York and back and forth because I knew that I thought, I thought that as soon as I finish this record, I'm going to be able to sell it to a major label and she's going to be huge. That was the only time I've ever felt that way about an artist. Like when I met the Strokes, I didn't know they were going to be big. When I saw Regina Spector the first time when she played one song for me, I was like, oh my God, this girl is going to be gigantic. So, yeah. And it worked out. That one worked out, yeah. So if you, let's say you were this guy, you had that studio and you had you had that knowledge and you how did that 
in New York City was expensive back then yes, too, right? Yes, yes, yes. How, how did it work out for you in this walking around? Yeah. And how did yeah. that evolve that? It really came from the first It like, really came from the first girl. She came in and did a day of work. She, it was going to be many days of work. But like as soon as she came into my, my studio, suddenly I wasn't going to starve to death anymore. I wasn't going to get kicked out of New York. I started to have a money coming in. And her drummer, literally, the first day I recorded her music, she brought a drummer in. And as I set up my four microphones and recorded him, he called on his cell phone a different band that he was in and said, this guy can make really cool drum sounds. Can't we record here tomorrow instead of Jimmy's studio across the road? I go, okay. So the next day I had a different band in, and pretty soon I had all these people coming in, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for a day, sometimes one day a week for three months. You know, I started really working very right. quickly. Yeah. Well, but you would still go out and do uh, yeah, I would to acquire new... Bands. I think I would go out to acquire new bands, but at that point, the word of mouth was just about how cheap the studio was and what the good results were, because I didn't have. I was in a basement studio. The live room was a quarter size of this room, and I had a I had a studio uh, control room about you know this big, mm -hmm. but inside was like a really good uh, manly compressor and a couple good Neves and an Avalon and a Kurzweil and a couple good microphones. So. Even if it was small, I could make good sounds. Now, if you don't have, if you weren't that lucky, because yeah. that was also a yeah. coincidence, right? Yeah. There was a yeah, studio very, there for you, and yes. you just walk in and everything's yeah. there. Yeah. Well, what would you have done, or what would you recommend? Because you don't, you know, many people don't have like twenty, forty thousand to to invest in the gear. nice right. in gear. Okay. Well, what, first what? of all, we're living in a time like in those days. That was the end of the old model. Like people still thought, if I spend two thousand dollars and I make a demo, I could get like a fifty or seventy-five thousand dollar record deal. That's people. Like I grew up with this dream. You know, if I write the right chords together, then I'm gonna have to be like Led Zeppelin with my own plane. That was like high on my mind all through growing up. You know, I'm gonna practice my scales so that I could wear fur coats like Keith Richards. That's, that was my big idea, right? So by the 2000s, this was like kind of the end of that time. And pretty soon after that, it's like all the big studios were closing down, all the labels were like running out of business, Napster was taking over, iTunes, whatever, uh, YouTube. So now we live in a time where not everybody not everybody you're gonna like their music is a rock and roll band. You know, it could just be um, a, a guy with a laptop using Ableton and Native Instruments, and you guys think, you know, I have learned and I've found some stuff, I could even help him. So you don't need to have all that other stuff to record a drum set. On the other hand, if you're in a recording place, and you're learning how to use Neumann microphones and Neve preamps and compressors, then you could say, like, come to my school studio or, you know, uh, and we do a demo at night. And then if you like it, then you, we save up some money and we go to some Berlin studio. There's ways to, to build it if you, if you want to. It's all about what kind of music you want to work on, what kind of people you want to hang around with as your, day, as your job, you know. The Strokes were the changing moment then, right? They were definitely the changing moment. 
How, how did that, what, what, what changed? What changed? Uh, suddenly, instead of me having to, uh, I don't know, look as hard for jobs, like lots of jobs were coming to me. Like I went to England after that, where the strokes were, no, that was the number one place for them. And the strokes did something very nice for me which is they put my picture this big on their CD. Their picture was this big, and my picture was this big. So I don't know any other producer that's had a big picture of them on a record. But so where I, when I go to towns, like people, hey, there's a guy from that record. Let's give him a CD and invite him to a party and give him a job. So that's what it's been like. That changed. That was a big change. And also traveling, I was working a lot in my basement studio in New York, and now I get to travel all over. I'm living in Berlin, I was living in London, I work in Argentina, and Mexico, and Seattle, and Bristol, and that's changed. And in terms of being a producer, did yeah. that, did you, was it just the time that passed by that made you become more sophisticated, better at what now, you do, or was it between now and then, or up to leading up to the strokes? No, after that, like after that, did that strokes and like going. To oh, I learned a lot. I mean, recording and recording and recording is like I'm not the fastest learner, but I've learned a lot of things. For example, when I first found this really sophisticated gear, and like when I recorded the strokes, I was really happy I discovered compression, because in the old days I always had to write up my vocals, like, okay, here's that word that I sing too loud. I was always doing this, and then with compression I could make it so easy, but I overused it. I put it on so heavily, and it wasn't until some kid went like, don't you notice that when he's screaming louder, it's actually getting smaller, the voice? It's not just staying steady, but the more he pushes, the tinier his voice. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. So now I don't like kill the voice. I, I use some compression, but I learned some, that's an example of something I learned on the way. And I'm, I learned a lot. I mean, I'm, I learned from the bands I work with too. I, I never thought, I would learn from other people, but like just the fact when the bands tell me, no, push up our vo vocal, push it up, push it up. Okay, that's where we want learning, where people want their snare drum to be, or how they want their guitars pan. Like all those things are very interesting to me, and they help me with my own music. And is that sometimes, does that put you in a conflict that you're like, well, they want the snare that loud, but it really doesn't sound good? Is that, is that ever happening? It's uh, very rare that what someone from a band wants sounds bad. It's okay. very rare. Now, what has happened to me sometimes, like I try to be, as I say, very fair and like, it's your music and this and that, but sometimes a guitar player will play a guitar solo and maybe I'll comp together two different solos and I'll make like something that sounds fucking unbelievable and I love it. And then like two days later after I'm already kind of mixing and working, the guitar player said, hey, last night I was listening to the mix and I think I want to play the guitar solo again. And I go like, Oh. <laughs> oh, I get so sad. I get, oh, you know, do I say it now? Or then he goes out there and maybe he plays like a, a really bad, or he's having, he's tripping over. It's just not the same. And at some point, I record his new solo. He goes, yeah, that's the one I want. And I actually do sometimes act like a spoiled teenager. Like I go like, you know, you just ruined the best part of the song. Listen to this new solo. Now listen to the old solo. Like this was so cool. Listen to that. You know, like sometimes I actually do that. And I do feel ashamed of myself. And sometimes actually the guitar player goes, 
You're right, Gordon. But sometimes, and 50% of the time they go, I see what you're saying, but no. And I go, okay. That's when I say it's your music, and I know that I tried, I cried, I, you know, I put up a fuss, and they still want it that way. So sometimes I do get emotionally attached to right. certain levels. Um, I'll tell you a great story. It's about working with the Strokes on the very first thing on the demo, right? And this is where I learned something very important. It was very early in my producing career for other people. And this is a lesson I take with me every day. So I gave him a three song, three day deal. And, and I had to work very hard. I always have to work really hard with the Strokes because there's five guys and they're all really smart and they're all listening to every little thing that everybody's doing and they know exactly when something's off rhythm, out of tune, out of time, out of tone. They're always having me do really hard work. And at the end of my first three days, it was like nine o'clock at night on the Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I was really tired. And I had five guys and their guru telling me, 4K, more 4K, turn the guitar up. No, can we redo the, okay, okay, okay. I'm like this, I'm really tired. And I'm fix, 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 fixing the last mix, it was barely legal or something. And in the back of the room, Julian says, hey Gordon. I go, what? He goes, can you turn the vocal up a little? I go, man, I've been mixing this song for two hours. I've really thought about it. This is exactly where the vocal should go. And he goes, nah, I kind of thought you would say something like that. You guys, you're recording guys. You just like, you just think you know everything just because you've been doing it for a long time. And I was thinking, I was just getting mad and I'm thinking, fuck you, fuck you, you know? And he goes, do me a favor. And I go, what? And he goes, what's the smallest number in Pro Tools? I say, one-tenth of a decibel. He goes, Turn that vocal up one tenth of a decibel on the chorus. So I go, okay, Julian, I draw the one decibel up, and I'm gonna push the button thinking that he will hear that it's too loud and he will shut the fuck up. Excuse me for swearing, but that's what I thought. And I press, I'm here, there, the whole band's in the back of me, and I press play, and instantly I have a problem in my mind. It sounds better. <laughs> now, do I tell him it sounds better and lose face as a great producer and ruin their song? Or do I admit it sounds better and we just go from there? And I said, yeah, you're right, it sounds better. And from that time on, I was very careful about making like, this is the best, it can, you know, like really important decisions for other people. All right, nice. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you look back at those, what's it been, 20, 30 years of recording almost? Eight, 1980, January 1st, 1980, I finished my first song. How many years of that? I forget. 35. <coughs> yeah, something like that. Okay. What would you have done differently now as the, uh, the, 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 the wise old producer? I wouldn't have taken so many drugs, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, is that something that you would have avoided? Uh, well, I did have a lot of trouble with drugs, but maybe they did help me. I don't know. I can't advocate drugs. I'm very against them. I don't do them now. But a lot of what I discovered with my synthesizer was from like very strong psychedelic drugs <laughs> in a dark room with headphones and a synth, like just turning knobs. And what can I say? Uh, 
I made a lot of mistakes recording in the early days, um, but I needed to make those mistakes to learn something. Like I put, I was always overdriving the tape recorders because I couldn't be, I didn't have the patience to, you know, get the levels correct. And now that's a sound I'm kind of famous for, overdriving the levels. But I know a hundred ways to do it now. Um, I'll tell you a story about Moses Schneider. Mm -hmm. There's a great Berlin producer called Moses Schneider who uh, did the beat stakes and Tokotronic <coughs> and Mediengruppe Telekommando. Is that how you say it? Yes, that's really? right. Really? Yes. All right. <laughs> and he's, he, was a, he came to New York when I had my first studio there because he wanted to bring bands from Berlin to record in New York. This was before 9-11, before uh, everybody had a hard time, including Moses, coming to visit. And he came on July 4th, America's birthday, and I met this brilliant guy, and he played me his music, and I was just jaw-dropped at how fantastic of a producer and musician he was. And I wanted to learn all his secrets, and I asked him millions of questions. What's that? It's an orchestra we hired. What's that? It's a bass slowed down that I'm playing at half speed. Like, all these tricks he showed me. And then I said, I have a problem. He goes, what? He said, come to my apartment. I played him all my music that I'd been working on. And I said, I really like my music, but nobody likes my music except me. <laughs> Why is that? And I, he said, play me some songs. I played him some songs. And he looked at me, and he nodded his head. He goes, uh-huh. He said, I'll try to do his accent. He goes, Gordon? I have a challenge for you. <laughs> I said, a challenge? I just wanted you to hear my song. What's a challenge? He goes, for one year, do not use any reverb and no delays. <laughs> and I said, fuck you. How are you supposed to make drums sound like the Grand Canyon and like things in outer space? And how are you supposed to do that without reverb and delays? He goes, I'm just challenging you. <laughs> and so when he went back to Berlin, okay, what am I gonna do? How, and I figured out how to use room microphones and compression, and right about that time, I met the Strokes. And I recorded everything I ever did with no reverb and no delays, and what do you know? So that was a little piece of advice that really helped me. Because when I was starting out, I was using a Yamaha 8-track PA mixer, a 4-track reel-to-reel, and a 57 microphone, a synthesizer, an echoplex, and a phase shifter. And so every single track I did, whether it was an 808 snare, it had phasing, chorus, flanging, delay, and reverb on it because it just sounded kind of crazy to me, all these different things. But when you add up like 24 different layers of too much effects and reverb, it just sounds like a, like a sandwich. So that, I think that was a very useful piece of advice. It kind of saved my life, I think. Now, you, you've never had a, a classical recording education, like you said. That's right, you? yeah. And, and you, you learned a lot on your own. Were, were there yeah. some other moments where you were, something like with Moses that happened, where you really actually learned something from, from, from someone where you'd say, I'm still doing that, or that was a great thing that I've, hmm. that changed something? I don't think, I don't think I've, I've had... I mean, I've read a lot of articles and stuff, but I don't think I've really had too many other moments where an outside source, um, you know, helped me with a breakthrough. Mostly it's just been my own creative experiments combined with having 
a million people or many, many musicians say, you know, I want to make a guitar solo now or I want to record my drums now and being successful in negotiating, making a cool sound that they like and that they really appreciate. Like, wow, this is really cool. These drums sound great. Thank you very much. You know, like just kind of interacting with people and experimenting and keeping track of the good results. What, what what happened if you were there moments where you weren't able to live up to that? One of the hardest if moments. You, if someone comes in and is like, I'd, I'd like to sound like that Jimmy Page guitar. Can you can you make that Jimmy? And okay, well, this, I'll tell two stories. One is that when we were wor working on Room on Fire by The Strokes, the guys were kind of laughing in the back, and uh, I said, what, "What's up?" And Julian said, "Before we start this song, Gordon, we want you to make." the same kick, snare, and hi-hat as this. And he put on Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. <laughs> and I'm going like, that's like, what was his name, uh, the producer? Bruce Sweden. No, that's the engineer. Uh, the engineer. Um, Come on, the great. Uh, Quincy Jones. Quincy, that's Quincy Jones with a million dollar budget in some big giant Hollywood studio with who knows what. And I don't know how they did it. But basically, it took me, I think, three hours of turning every knob and trying everything I could do. And then they said, okay, you did it. That sounds great. And, and then they never even used that sound. They, <laughs> after we recorded it, they said they wanted me to change it, but I actually worked. That was a really hard, sweaty moment. Later, of course, when I, I wasn't a Michael Jackson fan yet. Now I'm a giant Michael Jackson fan. I read a lot of stuff. Bruce Sweetian <coughs> built a wooden box around the kick drum for that record. A wooden box with a microphone inside it so nothing would go in and it wouldn't go out. So, but I didn't build a wooden box. I just used some microphones and some compressors <coughs> and EQs and came close. But that's a pretty good trick. So that's one thing. And then I've been fired from a number of jobs because bands were either not happy with the way things were going. But I went to record a band in Norway. And it was a very cool rock band called Pirate Love very interesting players. And this guy picked me up in a 1970s Japanese car and his whole house was decorated in the 70s and he had more recording equipment than I did and more guitars and wore all 70s clothes and his girlfriend looked like a 70s, it was like this whole blast from the past. So we went and we started recording and on the second day he said, Gordon, I'm having some trouble with your work. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're just putting microphones in front of these instruments and like recording. I go, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> he goes, I was hoping you could show me all the Phil Spector stuff, you know, with the, how he got all those sounds on those early records. I said, I don't know how Phil Spector records. I, he said, no, I'm sorry. I, I could put microphones in front of instruments. <laughs> But, and he, fi he, he fired me for that because I didn't turn enough knobs. But I only turn a knob if it needs it. How 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 did you cope with that? How, well, I, I've when, gotten do fired. Do you remember? Sorry, what? do you remember the first time you were fired from a job? Yeah, well, I got fired from my first bands because I couldn't keep time. You know, that was already like your first band. You're 13 years old, and your best friend fires you because you can't. <laughs> your piano playing is like getting slower and slower. Like so, I've had a, I've had a, a life history of getting kicked out of bands and fired. Like it, it, it always feels the same way. Even if some 18 year old kids, I've got fired from 18 year old kids in England before, and it feels feels like I'm the little 13-year-old kid getting kicked out of my first band. It's always like, oh, oh. <laughs> how, 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 And again, how do you cope with I that? I don't cry. You don't, I don't cry? cry. 
um, I cope with it by like, okay, well, you know, I feel sad. I try to reason with, I try to tell them like, are you sure? You know, this sounds good. I try to talk to them, them out of it a little bit. And then I kind of like pack my stuff up. I uh, have half of their money in my bank account. I'm glad the 50% upfront thing worked out okay. <laughs> and I kind of go to the airport. <laughs> Did that also work out before the strokes? That 50% that like as an advice like as a that deal thing of yeah. having an advance of 50% I didn't I usually worked by the day like mm -hmm. a band would come to me I was very rare that I did an album I would do like a day of work and at the end of the day the band would pay me and it was very rare I didn't get fired during that time everybody's really happy in those particular years um, I got paid on time I never worked for a label the bands would just like pay me and it worked out really well now, uh, uh, just a short execution, ex ex excursion, excursion? Okay. into the business side of things. Oh, what's that? Okay. Do you, <laughs> do you have a management, for example? I don't have management. I had management. The, I signed a management contract the day before I recorded the very first Strokes album. This guy told me that he managed Brian Eno and all these people. He invented producer management. And this guy did zero work never got me anything and got like something like i don't know ten thousand dollars a year for five years off me that i owed him because he was my manager and i hated him so much and i wrote him evil letters long <laughs> how can you sleep at night you shark you shark you shark i wrote him very mean things and i haven't found a manager since then so I wouldn't mind having a manager. In general, you would find it useful still? Or I, for my, I have an agenda. I've, see, I, even when I met him, I said, I have an agenda. Like, bands find me. I don't necessarily need someone to bring me bands. I don't want to work with you 2 I usually don't want to work with any famous established bands because I don't think they're, most of them are boring. You know, I like working with young bands. I find. That's fine. But when I record these bands, why don't you take them to a label and get them signed? Or why don't you help me with my music or my own label or my website? You know, somebody can help me do the other things. That's what I really want. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't found anybody ever that could do those things. Yet. But is it is it is it uh, does it take up a lot a lot of your time? Does it take up a lot of your time? It doesn't take up a lot of my time. Uh, I don't get five requests a day to work i probably get uh, a request every two weeks like every day some band from somewhere sends me things like hey here's our new ep we'd love you to listen to it and maybe i don't have time for that because i just spent all day in the studio or i'm working on my own music sometimes i do but many times i don't but any band from any town in the world that says our band wants to work with you Would you check out our SoundCloud page? Well, even if I'm tired and I've been recording all day and I'm about to go to bed, I'll at least listen to 35 seconds of that band to see if it's something that I could possibly work with. You know, and many times it is. It's very rare that I say no. All right. Usually the bands that contact me, they want a certain kind of sound, which is to play their music. They don't want, like I don't get contacted by super pop bands or you know bands that are nothing to do with my style or my interest that's cool and so the amount of people that talk to me i still have to communicate with them but it's not too much okay i, I can do it and did you get con after the strokes did many people contact you and, and say 
hey, can you make that Strokes sound on, on our... I moved to London right away. I, moved to, I went to London to visit the Strokes playing there, and I met lots of people, including the Libertines, that wanted me to record them. And for the first two years I lived in London, everybody wanted a distorted drum sound, a distorted vocal sound, and a really small sound. And then it doesn't happen too much anymore. That, kind of, that sound wasn't so in demand anymore. Yeah. So, uh, where are we time-wise? Uh, Hannah? She's gone, right? What, what time she is it? She had to go to sleep. <laughs> what, what time is it? 20, 20 after 8. Okay. I, I, I'd say we... we uh, one, one, one last question is, if that might be of interest, is Gordon Raphael taking interns? Interns? Uh, the sad fact is that though I've lived in Berlin for 10 years, I don't do a lot of work here. However, I work on a lot of my own stuff at my studio in Neukölln, and uh, if someone wanted to like check out some stuff, I would show them. All right, yeah. good to know. If I, were, if I get more work here and start needing some interns, I will definitely let you guys know. Great. Uh, so I'd say we we, we usually we usually open that last I like that. fifteen minutes. Let's do fifteen minutes or every, as long as there's questions, I'll stay and have fun with them. All right. Okay. Okay. Let's go. Oh hi. Hi. Um, we talked a lot about your past. Yes. What is your plans for the future now? Um, I recorded. 12 songs with my band in Argentina. I've been I got a brand new recording setup now. I went and bought all the most modern equipment you can get for pro like I bought a brand new Mac trash can, uh, Pro Tools 11 with a HDX card and a universal Octo card and so and and believe me that system is a pain in the it is so many weird bugs and that's it is so not ready for public consumption. Like, I cannot believe that they would actually charge money for such a poorly put together piece of software. For example, every 10 minutes I'm working with that, I have to turn it off and open the song again because latency comes out of nowhere. But when it's working, it sounds really good. And I'm mixing my own stuff right now. I just finished a very long job, a 30-day job with a band from Milan, Italy. And they wanted to record in Berlin, which was great because I actually got to stay home and work. We recorded at the Schaltraum at uh, Planet Rock building, what it, we call Funk House, your other campus, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, I recorded two weeks in the Schaltraum at Funk House, and we mixed for two weeks at my studio and did vocals there. So that was just very recently. Tomorrow I'm going to a Greek island for five days of swimming, which is really exciting. <laughs> I'm not going to bring my laptop. That's the first time I think I've not traveled with my laptop in like 10 years. And then I have a bunch of people in a few cities that want to do stuff over the summer. Some in England, some in Canada, some in Berlin. So there's little jobs and finishing my own stuff and trying to have summer vacation. That's my next big plan. Cool. Huh? Hello. So are you traveling with your own equipment or what? Like I usually travel without my own equipment. Okay. I usually travel with my laptop, but I usually, like if I'm working in Mexico City, for example, yeah. the band says, hey, we want you to record. I said, where do you want to record? Here in Mexico City. Uh, well, uh, which studio do you want to work at? And they said, we don't know any, do you? And I go, yeah, I do know a couple. Check out these, and if you can afford one of them, tell me. And so I usually check the studios well ahead of time. Yeah. And to make a really good album, I need like a room where everybody could play in. 
I need like three good microphones and 10 57s or 421s, you know? So three good microphones and 10 normal ones or, you know, every average ones. I need three good preamps and the rest could be sapphire, uh, what do you call them, you know, uh, whatever. And these three yeah. will be used for what then? Uh, kick drum, bass, vocals, yeah, at least. Kick drum, bass, I mean a snare can be a 57, a guitar can surely be a 421, but a room mic and a kick drum mic should be something special, uh, a beta 52 for the kick drum mic and a couple condensers for the room and for the vocals and a good preamp for vocals and APIs for the guitars preferably and the rest can be anything and I can still do a good job because that's kind of what the Strokes album is made of. Moses Schneider gave me his ghost mixing console mm -hmm. so eight channels were ghost and I had like an Avalon, a Neve and four APIs and so that's how it was. Did I answer your question yet? Or did I just talk in circles around it? I was thinking if you renting or actually... No, no, yeah, no. Um, I set up a studio. I, was, I went to go work in Texas for 10 days and wound up staying there six months and building a studio there because all these bands started coming and coming. And I wished I had my own gear and I sent to Berlin and I had like four preamps and two microphones and a compressor sent from my studio. So there was a point where I shipped some stuff and stayed in the US for three years. I just brought it back this, this time I came here in my suitcase. Other questions, please? Hi. Hi. Um, one, mixing your own music. Yeah. Isn't that extremely, extremely confusing because you're also the artist and the Yes, it, I was just playing my brand new mix of that very same song I played for you guys, the first song I played today to my studio partner and he goes, I really like the vocals, you've really, what have you done? I said, I turned them up really loud, you know? <laughs> And he goes, yeah, there's so much more energy from the voice. And I know that because all the bands I work with want the voice where I put it. But for me, it's so excruciating to bring it out of the mix. It is like really like I know what I'm saying and I know how silly I'm being. But, uh, you know, but it had to be done. I had to do it because I'm tired of people ignoring it. So I just brought it out. And my friend, my partner, he's in a band called I Heart Sharks. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They're a Berlin band. They're really cool. And he said it was good, so I trust him. But the hardest part for me is the vocals, mixing my own vocals. Psycho, they call it psycho-amplification. Your mind makes it louder than it really is because it's you. Okay, yeah, second so, question? Yes, um, well, coming from the capital of, of grunge. Yeah, um, yes. This is definitely my go-to. Analog versus digital. Yeah. You prefer, like, what well, you prefer? Well, to be honest, the way that I prefer to record is analog preamps, microphones, cables, guitar amps, guitars, human voices, a room, noise, that's all analog. And then capture it on Pro Tools with a good converter. Why? Because if a band of kids from Belgium or Seattle or Berlin wants to make, what do you want to do guys? Well, we have enough money for Nine days, how many songs? Twelve. Okay, we can do this. Can you play your songs live? Yeah, we practice really hard. We can play them all live really well. Okay, so if I'm using tape, 
Just rewinding the tape at the end of each song is going to take up about a third of their budgeted time. It's just rewinding, let alone, well, now that I put the tape on, I have to reset the drums so you can sing. You want to add that tambourine? Well, here, let me put the drums up. That takes like 10 minutes. Put the guitars on. So the time constraints for tape, even though there's a, a perceived benefit sometimes for the sound, you just it's just not feasible for the budgets I'm working with or the kind of artists I'm working with. I'm going to tell you one absolutely outstanding story about the Strokes and Gordon Raphael with tape recorders, okay? When I moved to London in 2002, every studio, they were taking me really, all the bands that were hiring me were bringing me to classic British studios and they all had tape decks. And when I, even when that's when I started Regina Spector, and I said, wow, this is gonna be great. For one year, or for, for now, I don't even wanna look at a computer anymore. I'm gonna record everything on tape. And I did, for one year, I recorded on tape and mixed on Pro Tools. Put, put it back on the machine, mixed it. So at the end of that year, 2003, the Strokes invited me to New York to a big studio that had a tape deck to record Room on Fire. And I said, hey guys, you want to record on tape? I've been recording everything on tape. And Julian looked at me and said, we usually don't have good results with tape. I said, no, you haven't done it with me. I will show you. And he looked, he rolled his eyes and looked at the ceiling. He said, okay, whatever. So before the strokes record, they get every sound perfect, like the exact tone on the amp, the exact microphone and preamp and EQ sound on the high, everything has to be perfect before they will start recording. So we spent four hours getting every sound just the way they wanted to. The band was out there, Julian the singer was sitting next to me in the control room, and I said, okay guys, play the song, and I pressed play on the tape recorder and we recorded the song, okay? And then the band came in and Julian's sitting next to me, the band's sitting behind me, and I say, check this out. And I press play and I'm listening going, that sounds really great, wow, it's so cool. And at the end, I look at Julian, I said, what do you think? He goes, what do you mean, what do I think? We just spent four hours getting the sounds exactly the way we wanted, and that fucking machine changed every single sound. <laughs> it's a good tape story, I love that one. <laughs> not, not everybody feels that way, believe me. I mean, Regina was loving, I recorded her album on tape, and she just loved the sound of it, and I know it can do really amazing things with drums and everything like that. I just don't get a chance to use it that often. I don't dislike it, but it's a question of when and how you can use it. Other questions? Hello. Yeah, um, so you collect synths. Um, yes. What do you, like, how do you record them? Or do you record them through amps or stuff, or do you just kind of plug them down into Pro It's funny, in the old days, I would record just like directly into my tape recorder through like a Yamaha mixer or in through a Mackie mixer into my digital 8-track and I'd use delays and stuff on it afterwards or I'd record it through a phase shifter or a, or a flanger and that sounded awesome to me. Now I record it with my APIs and with my Avalons, you know, two, sometimes two preamps with like maybe a little warmish. Sometimes I work on the EQ to make the extra fat on the low end. I was just recording my ARP Odyssey through a Avalon yesterday, and 
there's really no way to go wrong. Like even straight into a Mackie, a good, a real analog synth like a Mini Moog or a Mellotron or a Arp Odyssey will sound absolutely stunning. And you can also have experimental with flavors with an API, a good preamp and good EQs as well. There's just no way to go wrong with those things, I think. And you sort of ever use VSTs or you use I, when I'm on the road, I'm in like Mexico and I want to make a flying saucer land in the middle of this rock band's middle eight, you know, I go, hey guys, I want to make this UFO. How are you going to do that? And I pull up my, my Oddity by G-Force, which is exactly a great replication of my ARP Odyssey. And I go like, like, like wow. So there are times when I don't have a Mini Moog around and I use Arturia Mini Moog, you know, and it does that low end bass thing. There's it, no, no problem with that. But when I use my real Model D and I run it through a Marshall or something, there's some extra magic that comes from the real ones. But there's a time and a place for the VST when you can't bring your 1970s Mini Moog on the plane with you and have the guy throw it in the, you know. But in the studio, there are no uh, more digital units, but they're just the Pro Tools and... Uh, in mine? Yeah. Um, I do have some VSTs in my computer, and de mostly, I'd say, nine, I'd say almost all the time in my studio, I will replace my fake Selena with my real Selena strings. I'll replace my Arturia with my real Moog. However, that being said, that's from my music. There is something about VST synths and digital, like the new uh, Voyager. Like if you compare a Voyager to a Model D Mini Moog, it's a very different sound. Even though it's made by Moog and it looks the same, it's just completely different. And there's something a little bit happier and younger and a little bit more modern with modern VSTs and, and modern synthesizers. I have to say, when I use a Moog or my art, there's something very, it sounds like a fossil. It sounds like a dinosaur, it kind of groans and it's a little bit out of tune, a little wobbly. It's not so tight and so fresh, it's not really fresh. But most of the time people go like, wow. When they hear it, they go, wow. When they feel that feeling from them, there's something very special about it, but it wouldn't help every kind of music. You know, it definitely wouldn't. There's a, there's definitely something. I wouldn't say anything bad about VST plugins, but sometimes when you put a real analog synth on a certain type of part, especially on my own song, it just really sounds gigantic. Okay. And and when when you mix, do you do it in, in the box or or through? I have a fancy external way to mix. I would say that. For the last four years, I've mixed almost everything in the box. The last four years, um, I just recorded this band from Italy, and they were in my studio, and we finished the mixes, and I promised them that uh, part of the deal was that we could use my setup. My setup is Thermionic Culture Fat Bustard. It's a 12-channel tube valve, Roarer, um, summing amp. And it's got a red attitude knob. And when you have the attitude on zero, it's like the most clean hi-fi tube sound you've ever heard. And when you put it up towards about four, it starts to sound like you're running your mix through a Marshall. And when you put it on six, it just sounds like you're frying it in deep oil. And somewhere around three is a happy medium where the sounds blend together and it's still clean and punchy, but it sounds different. And then I use a, 
uh, SSL compressor after that, very lightly, just a, you know, a little bit, not like, like that, but just a little bit. And of the 12 songs we did, this band from Milan had excellent ears. They could hear everything, all of them, could hear every little detail all the time. And 10 songs they preferred on the thermionic culture bounce and two songs they preferred the straight in the box bounce for whatever reason. So it's good to be able to A and B. Okay? So it's sort of like coloring at the end. Yeah. You don't run separate tracks through your APs or something like that? No, I, I haven't done it. I really haven't. I mean, there have been some mixes in studios where I, like I was in Madrid five years ago recording a band in a big SSL desk and sure I put and I don't do everything I would do like the drums in stereo just on zero you know the bass on stereo like just stems kind of like that yeah and ran it through like the SSL that way and I was really happy with that I've also in uh, what was it I was in Argentina and I finished the mixes in the box and they had one of those Toft Trident boards, you know those things? Have you ever seen those? They're like a reissue of the Trident mixing console. It's a modern thing that's supposed to be an emulation of an old mixing console. And everything we ran through that sounded really bad. It just did not work. It was really a nightmare. So the in the box one, every one on that one. Okay, more questions? That was one here. Hello. Uh, yes, uh, what kind of music are you making right now? What kind of music am I making right now? Well, uh, should I play my one of my songs and then that yeah, would be? Yeah. Is it, yes, let, yeah, I'll no. play you a song. Let's answer one more question and then I'll play you uh, one of my brand new songs that I mixed, Perfect. and uh, we can stop there. Any more questions? <coughs> Hello. Okay, two more yeah. questions. Yeah, let, let the students go. Okay, you you first, yeah. gracious man here. <laughs> and when you use a uh, room microphones, yes. How far you place it from the source? I like to just put it somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> and then the next song make a big scene like, hey, look, I'm actually coming into you guys, and I'm I move it somewhere else. And at Schaltram, I put it under a lamp one time, just like, what's it gonna sound like under a lamp? Like. You know, that was funny. The one thing I don't want, I'll, I have only one general rule of what I don't want from a room mic. I don't want it to be a cymbal amplifier. The last thing I need is more cymbals. So I'm very free and easy. I'll put it under the table facing a corner. I'll put it, you know, in a weird place because you never know what you're going to get. And sometimes I often have two room mics. I don't usually make a perfect stereo. This is what the band sounds like in stereo. I don't like use it as a stereo thing. I use it as sometimes I'll use a room mic, maybe one of them, and just put it really compressed or distorted in one channel, like somewhere in the background where you hear something weird. Like you just, if you take it away, it sounds like a, a normal recording. And if you put it in there, it's something weird magic's going on. So a room mic to me is like a mysterious spice that you can use later to make the sound weird or multi three dimensional but i don't want it i don't want to listen to it and hear mostly like you know if i do get that i'll eq that out like all the way and then boost in the middle and make it sound like you know something like that anyway other question yeah. uh, do you have a favorite mic for vocals i do i do um 
I got to use a U67 a lot for my own vocals in uh, Argentina, and I really like that one. But in my studio, I bought. I was for, I was at Just Music when it was at the Culture Brow Ride. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. Um, the former play and. The manager came up to, no, some kid, some guy who worked there came up to me and said, hey, Gordon, this guy just walked off the street with a really great microphone. He wants to sell it to the store. Now, our boss will just mark up the price, and but I think you could use this microphone. I go, what is it? And there's this Neumann, I think it's called a 170R. And it's made so that, I don't have the control to do this, it's made so that the producer can be in the control room with a remote control and switch the patterns remotely. I don't do that, but this little microphone is so cool because I have a Neumann U87 that it was my favorite microphone of my own, my best mic I ever had. You know, it's still, it was really the most expensive mic I ever bought, a really good mic for everything. But this 170R, it's kind of a younger, it's got all the quality and all the detail of the U87, but it's more young sound. It's not so old sounding and it can, you can put it right up to a bass amp or a kick drum and it's just magic. I really like that mic for singing into. So there you go. Any other questions? One more question. You. Yeah. <laughs> um, earlier Flo asked you uh, really creatively like that television sounded like the Strokes records yeah. in this. What do you think in this regard of music repeating itself? You've seen 35 years of it, you know, uh -huh. or more. What, what do you think will be like 35 more, years? More, because I listened to music yeah. for a long time before I recorded music. Right. So 25 or 35 years from now, yeah. what wow. do you envision that I don't know. be going on? I have no idea. I'm not a good predictor of things. Uh, I'm a big believer that music is a very potent, magical, spiritual force. It's not only a commercial thing to sell t-shirts at the mall. I think the human beings somehow need music and it's got a, a magic power that will never leave. As long as there's humans, there'll always be music. Whether or not the next trend is going to be people in the forest hitting sticks together and rocks, I don't know, or you know, plug-ins. I don't, I don't really, I'm not good at predicting the future. But I really firmly believe in music and that it's very important and worth sticking with. That's that's all I know. Yeah. And and, I, and that is a really great uh, uh, last word I think. Okay. The lecture. Okay. So let's maybe. Okay. Hear, I'll show you hear. a song I made recently and mixed. Another one, a band from Argentina. Um, let me see where it is.
Con Rafael, thank you very much.